which comes from the book of First Timothy in chapter 5, and we're looking today at the first two verses. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. You may be seated. been a lot of mention of family this morning, and that's appropriate. Um, that's going to be kind of our focus, kind of, sort of. And uh, like most people, not all people, unfortunately, but like most people, I grew up in a family. And that family had a mom, a dad, a brother, and a sister. And here's the awe moment. Aww. Now, y'all see I got all the looks. I didn't say good looks, I said looks. And that's uh, me, my sister, my dad, my mom, my brother. Um, let me tell you a little bit about them. My dad is Donald Moore. If you know, you know. Uh, nicknamed Dude in his school years. He was a multi-sport athlete, including a state wrestling championship and induction into the West Virginia State Wrestling Hall of Fame. I knew my dad and still know my dad as a worker. From the time he gets up to the time he retires at the end of the day, he's on the go doing, working, mowing, chopping, whatever, even now at 77. My mom is Marty Moore, technically Martha Joanne, but don't ever call her that. She does not like that name. She's Marty, maybe Marty Joe if you're her mom who passed away a few years ago. But Marty, Marty works. Um, She has always cared about and for people. Uh, Her sister used to tell stories of mom growing up, and mom would cry when she was a little girl, and they'd ask her why. She'd say she was worried about so many people who were lost and would go to hell if they died. Mom was home with us most of my childhood, caring, cleaning, cooking, making our home a haven of rest and peace. And she did too good a job because I was a homebody. I'd have stayed at home all the time. I just liked it there. And I've watched my mom care for her mom and my dad's parents and even grandparents and my dad's siblings and others as they aged and dealt with sickness, disease, and ultimately death. Everybody in the family and in the community knew, well, we'll let Marty handle it. And she did. My brother Doug, whose name is actually Donald Wademore, is technically my half-brother. His mother died in a car wreck when he was three And dad married my mom a little after that. And he is a big brother. Ten years my senior, I'm quick to point out to him. Even though he doesn't look it, does he? I don't know. Um, He's a big brother. That meant that, yes, he he, uh, held my face in an anthill once because he thought that was funny. He held me underwater too long and too often a few times. He likes the Boston Red Sox. I'm a Yankees fan. Well, those guys don't get along. He's a Raiders fan. I'm a Redskins fan. They beat us in the Super Bowl uh, as I was growing up. And we had a lot of fun together at different times of life, playing sports, hanging out. I'd go to his house when he was in his 20s and hang out with him and his friends. And, of course, we together made fun of my sister because that's what you do as brothers, right? Uh, Doug's now married to his wife of almost 20 years, and he's a middle school history teacher now, which I would have never pictured him being. And the kids love him. He's, He's 
harsh and mean and fair, and they love him. And he actually had went back to school as an adult and got two degrees as a non-traditional student and then became a teacher. It's been several years now. And then there's my sister, Andrea Deshaun Moore, Andrea Deshaun Tackett now. I called her Sissi growing up. I didn't have a speech impediment. I just wasn't real smart. So... Um, but I've actually kind of reverted to that as I've gotten older because we both like it. She likes to be called that, and I like to call her that. She was my go-to late at night when I was nervous and anxious the night before the first day of school, all the way through, pretty much. She'd remind me that I'd done this many times before, and she'd let me crawl up in her bed so I could get to sleep. She was valedictorian of her high school class, got her RN degree in an accelerated two-year program, and has been called the best nurse some people have ever worked with. She's currently working in oncology and has recently completed her studies to become a nurse practitioner. She's married with three adult children who say she's the best mom in the world. It's kind of like a Hallmark card, isn't it? Huh? Yeah. And, of course, we all know in this picture-perfect family there's never been any troubles, never been any hardships, never been any disagreements or difficult times, right? Right? No. We all know better than that. Family life, as perfect as it can sound, and I can paint this pretty picture, family life is messy. Always has been, always will be. Family life is lived with the people who know you cold. They see your best and your worst. And I could tell you some terrible stuff about all four of these people up here that I've just gushed about. And they might could tell you some bad stuff about me. (laughs) And through our years together, we've enjoyed one another. We've rolled our eyes at each other. We fought with each other. We've teamed up against each other. And we've had just about every dynamic you can think of because we're family. Well, guess what, church? Look around. We're a family, too. Here in this building, those who aren't here this morning, that are a part of this assembly, we're a family. If you'll remember, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy to help him and those in the church at Ephesus know how they should conduct themselves in the household of God, the family of God. And today we're going to look at how Timothy is to approach his interactions with his family members to help correct and encourage those at the church in Ephesus, which gives us that same instruction as we seek to correct and encourage each other in this faith family. So I want to reread the passage, all two verses of it. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, we've spent four full chapters of 1 Timothy with Paul telling Timothy what to watch out for, how Timothy is to handle himself in the process of this assignment in Ephesus. And now, Paul moves from focusing on Timothy and the problems there in Ephesus, changing his focus to Timothy and the people there at Ephesus. Churches are made up of people. 
And those people form a family. So Timothy, as I've sent you there, and, and Timothy's not a native of Ephesus, okay? He's been sent there as kind of a overseer to set things right, almost like a consultant. And I hate to say that, but that's kind of what it's like. Timothy's not going to stay in Ephesus. He's going to move around a little bit more from here. Um, but anyway, he's there, and he needs to know how to handle the people that make up the church. And those people are to be seen and treated as his family. And we'll take these two verses in even smaller chunks than just the verses themselves, focusing in on specifics for older men, younger men, older women, and younger women. And note from the outset that the factors that determine how we approach each other here in this passage, that determine how Timothy was to approach those in Ephesus, there's two specific determinants. Gender and age. That's pretty important. Gender and age, which we'll talk about a lot as we go along, and specifically in application when we get there. And we know that these factors are just as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this letter. The Bible is just simply phenomenal in its relevance. Phenomenal. So here we go. So what we're going to do first is we're going to focus on do not rebuke an older man. Stop. And note here from the outset of the passage, the tone is how to handle confrontations. I'm going to start this. I didn't. Of course I didn't. The tone is on how to handle confrontations. Timothy is tasked with correcting, teaching, and even discipling and disciplining these folks in the church here. So as Paul works through these four types of people, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, it's with an emphasis on how to best correct them, how to teach them. And while the principles surely are relevant in the relationships in and of themselves, the point is about how we are to approach them in conflict and correction. So with that in mind, do not rebuke an older man. Now the word for rebuke is a strong word. Epiplesso. To rebuke, to strike upon, to beat upon, to chastise with words, to chide, to upbraid, or to rebuke. And the emphasis here is on harshness. In treatment that seems to be too much. And there's indications of arrogance and superiority there too. And who is Timothy not to rebuke? Who is he not to act like this toward? He's to not act like this toward older men. Okay, Presbyteros, which actually is the same word for elders when we saw the qualifications for elders. This is not talking about the office of elder. This is talking about an older man, an eldest, elder of age, the elder of two people. Advanced in life, an elder, a senior. could even refer to forefathers, and there's a big, long definition after that. But that's what we want to focus on this morning. Again, the same word as the church office, uh, but today we're just talking about somebody who's older than Timothy because Paul's talking to Timothy. So respect your elders, right? Don't elevate yourself and or speak harshly in your teaching, your instructing, even your correcting Men who are older than you, Timothy. But encourage them as you would a father. Okay, so Timothy is not to rebuke, 
but to encourage. Now, the word for encourage is a long definition. I'm going to read it all. Parakaleo, we've seen this before. Um, it's used 43 times, uh, 109 times in the, in the New Testament, 43 times as beseech, comfort 23 times, exhort 21 times, blah, 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 blah. To call to one side, starting there at definition one, call for, to summon, to address, to speak to, which may be done in a way of exhortation, entreaty, comfort, or instruction. Now, you see the difference real quickly there? Don't rebuke, don't upbraid, but parakaleo, comfort, call them to you, entreaty. Okay, so, so it's speaking in a way that is more about, hey, there's a feeling of companionship or comfort here. And we mentioned this in a previous passage, but the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete back in John's gospel, the helper. So if an older man needs corrected, and that's going to happen in Timothy's ministry, if an older man needs corrected, do it in a helping way, not an arrogant or harmful way. And Paul drills this home even more by saying that Timothy is to do this as he would do it to a father. Pater is the Greek word, 419 times in the New Testament. And it's translated as father and father. <laughs> Capital F father and little f father. And I love this, I love this term, generator. Okay? And if you go all the way back to the Old Testament references to father, it's the same thought pattern. It's the generator. We talk about generations, the generator is the father, the nearest ancestor father of the corporeal nature, natural fathers, both parents. So Paul is saying, don't go in and talk your jive talking. Sorry, I've been on a Bee Gees kick recently. Um, that's a true story. I don't know how that happened. But uh, yeah, I do. Never mind. I'll tell you later. Um, don't go in there all high and mighty and these stupid old men. And let me tell you where you're wrong. You've been ignorant all these years and now I'm going to fix this. But go in and say, hey, can we talk a little bit? I've got something that I need to bring up that, that I think we need to address. I, I promise you, in our meetings with Don and Bob, I don't go in there all high and mighty. Um, I respect those men in a way that... Um, let's see. I mean, I'm say the wrong thing here. Probably nobody else in this church building. And I'm going to treat them that way on purpose as a father. They are like fathers to me. And I got a little lump in my throat when I said that. Um, so if I'm going to confront them, not arrogantly, if I was to confront my dad, I can't see me going in full of venom and anger. I'd appeal to him, reason with him, and hope that he would know and see that I love him in what I'm saying. Dude would knock me out. That's the truth. <laughs> it's funny, when, he was, when, when I was younger, dad was... That was a stout man. He was a strong man, and he'd, he'd flex his muscle, and it was, it was big. And he'd say, get up there and say, cock-a-doodle-doo. <laughs> I still don't know what that means. I think he was calling me a chicken. And that's what he'd say. He would knock me out. So I respect him, right? <laughs> On purpose, I respect him. Oh, my dad. <laughs> and Paul is to proceed, Paul is telling Timothy to proceed that way with older men, even those who need corrected. And remember, Timothy is probably in his early 30s here. 
And we said he's a little bit timid, he's a little bit backward, uh, and he's probably dealing with people older and much older than him on a consistent basis, which leads to a feeling of, oh, man, I don't know if I can do this. Kent Hughes called this dynamic with these older men a sweet discomfort. And I'm sure Timothy felt a lot of that. And he had to walk a fine line between exerting and emphasizing the doctrine and standing steadfastly on the doctrine and not overemphasizing himself. Exert, pound on the doctrine, don't overemphasize yourself, Timothy. Especially when dealing with older men. But they're not all older, right? Nope, too far. So do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. So there were surely guys in the church at Ephesus that were around Timothy's age and even younger. Timothy was a younger man, and his peers would have been younger men. Now how was he to handle confronting and relating to them? Younger men as brothers. And this is actually a tough one. Timothy was probably friends with some folks of his age and some younger And if he had to correct or discipline them, how should he go about that? And how should he just generally interact with them as well? Uh, The word for brother um, is Adelphos. Now what's, what's that make you think of? Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? Yeah, and, yeah, and, and steak sandwiches too, but brother. A brother, whether born of the same two parents or only of the same father or mother, having the same national ancestor, belonging to the same people or countrymen, any fellow or man, a fellow believer, united one another by the bond of affection. So brother is a wide range, and again, we're talking about family relationships here. The most striking thing in this for me is, is if you look, it's one who shared the same womb. Is that, did, did I cut it out? I did cut it out in my definition. Part of the definition was one who shared the same womb. Okay? Brothers are quite the dynamic. I remember uh, my brother and I would play pickup basketball after I was married. So we're adults here. And if we were on the same team, man, we were great teammates. We we worked well with each other and, you know, we kind of knew each other and had history there. But if we were on opposite teams... I didn't dislike anybody more than I disliked him on the other team. I remember one time, I, it was a clean steal. He was dribbling up the court, and I came, and I just swiped it, and I went for a layup. He's like, he fouled me. I'm like, you big baby. And we were literally were chest to chest, you know, doing this thing, right? <laughs> Two five-foot-six guys full of <laughs> fire and panic. Um, so there's just a weird dynamic there. I mean, many times, playing sports especially, we almost came to blows. We never got in a fight, never. Um, so really, with a brother, there's no greater ally and there's no greater adversary than brothers, it seems like, right? So I'm going to pull back to an old, well, I say old, 80s and 90s country music, Earl Thomas Conley. Anybody know Earl E.T.C.? I'm the only person in the building who's ever heard Earl Thomas Conley. He sang a song with Keith Whitley. Y'all have heard of Keith Whitley, right? Some of you. Wow. <laughs> they were good friends, and they recorded a song together called Brotherly Love. And so I'm going to read you part of the lyrics that paint this picture of best friend and worst enemy type of thing. We shared the same last name and the same color eyes. 
but we fought like tigers over that old red bike. I'm batting first, and you can't use my glove. It wouldn't take long until push came to shove, but we looked out for each other with brotherly love. There's a line in there, too. It says, we disagree, but in the end, there will never be two closer friends. So, don't you tell me what to do. Who do you think you are, big brother? But nobody else better mess with my brother. Right? There's conflict, both healthy and unhealthy. There's fellowship. There's encouragement. There's camaraderie and there's competition. But it's all in the boundaries of this is my flesh and blood. We're on equal footing. We are here for each other. We got each other six. Right? No doubt. Even when he's holding my face in an anthill, he's still got my six. Nobody else better hold my face in an anthill. Right? He is fine for him. But not, not anybody else. So Timothy, when dealing with younger men, or men around the same age, because Timothy's a younger man, your age and younger, remember these are your brothers. And when you're correcting them, admonishing them, treat them as brothers. And you talk about arguments. Me and my brother got in some arguments. And there was never a question if we loved each other. And when it was done, it was done. Okay, treat these younger men this way. That's simple enough. But wait, there's more, right? There are ladies too Timothy's going to get to deal with. Notice I didn't say have to deal with. He gets to deal with them. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. So we'll focus on older women as mothers. Now remember, the context here is confronting people in correction and or encouragement. As a leader, an elder, an overseer in the church, men will need to have interactions with women, as Paul is calling on Timothy to do here. And the word for older women is actually the same as for older men. It's just the feminine presbyteros, presbyteros. And the context determines whether it's male or female, and here it's female. And again, it means a person who is older than another person. That's all. And how is Timothy to treat and entreat these older women as mothers? Now, if you remember, P.A. was the beginning of, of father, pater. This is mater. Um, 85 occurrences, mother. I lost my slide there. Uh, a mother, the source of something. So father is generator and mother is source. I love that picture. I love that. That's beautiful. Uh, and how should this young man, Timothy, treat these older women as if they were their mother? How does he handle that? Imagine Timothy needing to correct an older woman. Maybe she's not maintaining her role in the church assembly as Paul had instructed back in chapter 2. And so Timothy calls on her and he sits down with her. How do you think he would address her? How would he talk to her? Would he berate her, put her in her place? Handle her roughly? Exert his dominance? Of course not. He would, like he did with the older man, reverently and lovingly petition her, reason with her, and appeal to her. Paul is telling Timothy to remember his exchanges with his mom and approach the ladies older than him in Ephesus this way. It's gentle and it's respectful. That's pretty straightforward, right? Older women as a mother. Well, there's one more. (laughs) 
Timothy. Oh, why am I not clicking? Come on now. There we go. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Mm-hmm. Yep, young bachelor eligible Timothy will have to interact with, he'll have to serve, and he'll even have to wield authority over younger women too. Younger women is the word neoteris, and it means young or youthful female. Okay? No need for that definition. It is what it is. Well, Timothy is called upon to treat them as sisters. And that's the female version of the word for brother, which was adelphos. This is adelphos, a sister. And how are young men to treat their sisters? Listen, young men. The brother-sister relationship is an odd one, right? So you don't have a competition and you don't fight with your sister like you would your brother. Now, I'm not saying you don't disagree and you don't argue and you don't grit your teeth and one one time my sister got in my face and I was like 14 and I pulled back my fist and she looked at me and she went, go ahead. (laughs) Do it. She did. She really did. She knew I couldn't do it. She knew I'd have have got up on here and said cock-a-doodle-doo real quick, right? (laughs) You don't fight your sisters like you fight your brothers, fellas. And if you do, stop it. Don't do that, right? Brother-sister relationship is awesome. Just let some jabroni say or do something to a guy's sister, right? Bro is going to take up and protect his sister. At least he should. Before my relationship with my wife started, there was not a human being closer to me than my sister. It's a powerful bond. And Timothy, in dealing with false doctrine, God-ordained roles, organizing for needs in the church and so many other things, is to have this sister-like relationship with the younger women in the church there. They are like his sisters. And look at the addendum to this clause. Younger women as sisters in all purity. In all purity. Now, why do you think Paul would include that phrase here? Well, duh. Timothy's going to deal with temptation when it comes to interacting with some of these young ladies. A young single leader in the church is going to have to watch himself as he finds himself in differing roles with ladies his age and younger. So make sure it's in all purity. The Phillips paraphrase says, as sisters and as nothing more. I listened to several messages on this passage this week, and I can't remember, I didn't write it down, if it was Danny Aiken or Kent Hughes who said that Timothy is to P-R-A-Y, pray for them, not P-R-E-Y, pray on them. And oh, how sad and awful it is when this advice isn't taken. There's not much more sickening than a man with a place of spiritual authority using that authority to take advantage of young ladies under his care. Pastors, Sunday school teachers, counselors, elders, deacons, fathers of younger girls who have younger girls as friends. The word for purity means sinlessness. Timothy, don't sin in your ministry to younger women. Don't sin in your mind. Don't sin with your hands. Don't sin in your heart. Don't sin with the authority that you have or in any way whatsoever. 
Guard yourself, prepare yourself, and treat these young ladies like you would your sister. Period. Nothing more than that ever. Now, quick addition here. Maybe at some point, one of these younger ladies ends up being a romantic interest of yours. That's possible. That's not sinful. But don't use your position to get into that position. There's a way to conduct yourself in that situation that's not sinful, and there's a way to make sure that your position, your ministry, your authority doesn't lead you to abuse in a physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual way. But your general stance is this young lady in front of you that you're ministering to and serving and maybe even correcting is like your sister until you start to pursue anything romantic in a different vein, in a different type of relationship. Until then, you treat her like your sister and nothing more. That's the end of the passage. But I got some time, y'all. And really, I mean, this is pretty simple and clear to understand, right? And the passage itself is really four application points. How to treat older men, how to treat younger men, how to treat older women, how to treat younger women. But, and well, before I say that, and we do need to look at this passage and evaluate ourselves and how we relate to the people who are sitting here this morning. Okay? Because it's not just about correction, even though it's specifically about that in this passage. How do I treat older men? How do I treat younger men? How do I treat older women? How do I treat younger women? In my relationships with them in this church. And you need to look at this passage and keep it in mind when you're dealing with somebody. Whether it's doctrine or just hanging out. And we, but we do need to look at application for us as well. And I think we need to look at this passage through our particular cultural moment in particular. So we'll be looking at application through three non-alliterated points. Sorry, couldn't do it. Just could not do it, y'all. But the three points are very simple, very memorable. Age, gender, and family. Right, All right there in the passage, right? Age, gender, and family. That's the application points. Buckle up. Here we go. Age is the first application point. As individuals, as a church collective, we are to take people's ages into consideration when we are interacting with them. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women. And I think we would all do well to pay special attention to how we respond to and treat those older than ourselves. I have not done a good job with my kids in this area. And they're not disrespectful people. But I haven't emphasized this. I have found and seen through jokes, through conversations, that ageism is one of the most widely accepted prejudices among the saved and the unsaved. Our culture discards the aged. Youth, disrespect, okay, boomer, with an arrogance unimagined in days past. And the aged are not innocent in this either. 
debasing and saying negative things about those younger than them. And there's an air of superiority that can be there. But listen, please, please, please listen to me. We as the church are supposed to be different than the culture. Let's go way back to the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 19.32. Not the year 1932, that's pretty funny. I remember, no. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. And you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. We're not even quick to give up our seats for older people anymore. And we should be. We should pay attention when an older person enters the room. And I'm saying this to every age. Somebody older than you comes into the room. God told the Israelites, stand up. Why? It's a sign of reverence. A sign of respect. What if we were this kind of people? We'd be different, wouldn't we? And we should be. Am I saying thou shalt stand up when a gray head walks in? I'm not. But man, it wouldn't hurt a thing. If you read Lamentations, let me set the, 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 the setting for Lamentations. So the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Babylonians. And Jeremiah is writing this epic poem about the destruction and the grief and the sorrow and the horrific things being seen there. And he says that God's done this. Okay, watch this. Lamentations 4.16. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests. No favor to the elders. Now the question is, is that the leaders as elders or was that older people? Well, I think if you go on, after saying that this is what's happened, after saying that women are raped, people are eating their own kids... Jeremiah then says, this is happening in, the, in Jerusalem at this point. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Princes are hung up by their hands. That's horrific. And no respect is shown to the elders. That's horrific too. I think we're cold, calloused, and uncaring when it comes to this. And I think we should be very particular, very careful, very respectful, especially when we address somebody older than us. I remember being 14, 15, 16, 20, 30, and thinking that I was smarter than everybody else. I'm 47 now, I'm almost 48, and I realize there is wisdom in years that I don't have. And I would petition all of us to respect that wisdom. Please petition the older people and beg them to share that wisdom with you. Don't treat old people as if they're old people. Older people whom you should respect. And let me say this to the older people. Don't talk down to the younger people. Don't mock them and ridicule them and act like you're just stupid. You don't know anything. Again, we love each other. We respect each other. But I would petition us specifically as younger people to show more respect on purpose 
for older people. First Peter 5, 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Older men as fathers, older women as mothers. Age. Second application point, gender. Wow, that, that word all of a sudden is a hot-button topic. This message is different 10 years ago than it is today. 20 years ago. 50 years ago. Gender. We have reached a place in our culture that gender is a hot-button topic like maybe no time in history. And like so many things, the fallout of the culture has reached the church. In today's passage, we saw two genders, men and women, male and female, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, in the church, this is a God said it and that settles it type of deal. There are no provisions made in the scriptures for any other options as far as gender goes. Nor do the scriptures make provisions for the God-given gender to be changed or different than the one that God ordained. Chromosomally. And we are to treat people according to their gender. And we treat males differently than we treat females. Older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, younger women as sisters. Men treat men and women differently, and women treat men and women differently. Don't treat fathers as mothers. Don't treat brothers as sisters and vice versa. And we live in a time and a place where that sounds hateful to some people. So how do we handle gender, male and female, in and as the church? Elizabeth Elliot says this, we are to, quote, define them not fashionably but biblically and with good common sense, end of quote, to which I say yes and amen. Simple, easy, plain. John Piper said this, and this is a... The tendency today is to stress the equality of men and women by minimizing the unique significance of our maleness or femaleness. But this depreciation of male and female personhood is a great loss. It is taking a tremendous toll on generations of young men and women who do not know what it means to be a man or a woman. Confusion over the meaning of sexual personhood today is epidemic. 
The consequence of this confusion is not a free and happy harmony among gender-free persons relating on the basis of abstract competencies. The consequence, rather, is more divorce, more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more social awkwardness, and more emotional distress and suicide that come with the loss of God-given identity. End of quote. This is a big deal. So what do we do? Well, as with all things, as with all things, we filter gender through our great goal. To glorify God in all that we do. That's our great goal. And that goal is realized... Glorifying God is realized as we obey the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How do we best love our neighbor in this situation? Because we're all going to find ourselves in some situations where we're going, I don't know what to do here. I don't know how to handle this, believer or unbeliever. St. Augustine, which... Augustine, we're not saint people, right? I guess we're all saints, but one of the early... Now, this is, this is early, this is 200, 300 A.D. said this, Whoever then loves his neighbor aright ought to urge upon him that he too should love God with his whole heart and soul and mind. For in this way, loving his neighbor as himself, a man turns the whole current of his love, both for himself and his neighbor, into the channel of the love of God. We best love our neighbor by pointing him or her to God and calling on them to love God. So then what? So, so we just we're peeling sections of the onion back, and it just seems like it's multiplied. So what do we do? Well, first, as the church, we love God by loving His design. We thank God for maleness and femaleness. Denny Burke is a professor of biblical studies at Boyce College in Louisville. He's the associate pastor at Kenwood Baptist Church, and he serves as president of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. He says this, A rising generation of self-described evangelicals no longer believes that the church has always believed about the nature of marriage and about God's special design of male and female. These issues of sexual morality and personal identity have always been central to the Christian faith, yet now they're being abandoned by some, even within the evangelical movement. He goes on to say, Our aim has always been to serve Christ's church by pointing God's people to what the Bible teaches about sexuality and gender. There are, these are such contested issues in our time, but they shouldn't be among God's people. We need to stand firm and together for the truth of what God has revealed to us. Burke writes this in an introduction to what was called the Nashville Statement, which was released by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood on August 25th of 2017. Now remember, we're talking about loving God as the greatest commandment when it comes to dealing with gender and sex. 
The preamble of that Nashville statement says this. And I do commend the Nashville statement to you. I have signed the Nashville statement in agreement with it. The preamble says this, We believe that God's design for His creation and His way of salvation serve to bring Him the greatest glory and bring us the greatest good. God's good plan provides us with the greatest freedom. Jesus said He came that we might have life and have it in overflowing measure. He is for us and not against us. Therefore, in the hope of serving Christ's church and witnessing publicly to the good purposes of God for human sexuality revealed in Christian Scripture, we offer the following affirmations and denials. And there's 14 articles to this statement. And I would go look it up. I'll post a link to it to Facebook later. But I, I want to indicate something as, as I look back at that preamble. We believe that God's design for His creation and His way of salvation serve to bring Him the greatest glory and bring us the greatest good. If we are going to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we agree with Him in His design. Male and female, He created them. So we say yes and amen, Lord. Now... How do we love our neighbor here? How do we serve our neighbor? Who's our neighbor? The answer is yes. Anybody you come into contact with via the internet, face-to-face, in traffic. Yes, even that guy. It's your neighbor. And we've got plenty of neighbors who have questions, agitations, anger, resentment, and bitterness toward the church over the issue of gender. So what do we do? The first thing I would say in order to best love your neighbor, specifically regarding gender, is mind your tone. Do not speak derogatorily. Do not speak arrogantly. Roll your eyes and this is not hard. You're complicating this. It is complicated. It shouldn't be, but it is. So don't talk to somebody who's wrestling, struggling, worrying, or defiantly shaking their fist at this design. Speak to them in love. Appealing to the truth of God's Word, not your opinions, not your feelings. And appealing to a desire for God's glory and for our good, including the person you're speaking to. This passage just absolutely jumped off the page as I'm looking. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now listen, I've had some difficult conversations over the recent years as far as gender goes with outsiders. Be wise. Make the best use of that time in that conversation. Always let your speech be gracious so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Some of these conversations have left me going, I don't know what to think, say, or do here. 
Do I affirm this? Do I just say, okay, whatever, it doesn't matter? Do I stand up and shake my fist at them and say, you're wrong and you're going to hell? Should I call them their preferred pronouns? Should I call them the name that they want changed to? And listen, I don't have a lot of answers, y'all. But I've got that. Shooting up some of those Nehemiah-type arrow prayers in the midst of the conversation. God, help me to be gracious. God, give me wisdom. Because every situation is going to be different, but the principles and the truth behind it are not different at all. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious. Always be gracious. Always be gracious. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Do not compromise the truth. And do not be arrogant. And if you're angry, let your anger be toward the father of lies not toward the person who's trying to convince you that what they believe is right or what they're doing is okay. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And the big phrase there is speaking the truth in love. Don't compromise the truth, but don't cause the truth to make you not speak in love. And I'm telling you, these are fine lines. These are hard topics. These are cultural moments. I told Amanda the other night, I wish the ring had never come to me. So do all who live to see such times. All that we have to do is how to make the best use of the time that we've been given. Innocent as doves, shrewd as serpents, speaking the truth in love, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Always with your speech being gracious. Andrew Walker says this, To the Western world and the Western church, conflicts over sexuality are spilling into every corner. Common occurrences such as divorce and abortion terminate marriages and unborn life. The glorification of homosexuality obscures sexual design and the mainstreaming of same-sex marriage threatens the stability of the natural family. Anthropological truths of male and female identity are overturned by the idea of gender plasticity. Newfound movements such as Me Too confront the sexual degradation of women and abuse of power. 
and I'll put in parentheses, as they should. Child sex abuse controversies are roiling both Protestants and Roman Catholics. All of these have in common a drift from and denial of God's pattern for sexual morality. So, in turn, one of the most loving acts that evangelicals can give to their neighbor and this world is to point their understanding of sexuality back to God and to reflect the basic truth that God's pattern for sexual morality is a common grace meant for our good and His glory. End of quote. Put away your yeah buts and introduce them to your vocabulary. God has said. And I love you. Gender. Age, gender, and finally family. And this is the main point of this passage, by the way. Family is. So as far as application goes, doggone it, y'all. Let's enjoy the family of God. Let's conduct ourselves in a way within the family of God that we show that we know our role and the value of the others who are in this family. Psalm 68.6, God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. God settles the solitary in a what? In a home. Ephesians 2.19-22, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also, family, church family, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Some, some folks didn't have the benefit of a good, solid nuclear family growing up. Does that mean they're bad or wrong? Heavens, no. But God places the solitary in a family. He adopts them into his own household. And look around. you got fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters sitting in this room this morning who will love you. And that's powerful. That's good. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are, who are of the household of faith. Let's purposefully remind ourselves and each other that we are members of this household of faith. Yes, we are part of the church universal, the big church, the Catholic church, not the Roman Catholic church, the universal Catholic church. Yes, that's true, but God's placed us in a family. And let's treat each other like family. So all you folks my age, I'm so much older than Will. You shall treat me as an older man, as a father. Because in, in about a month, I'm going to turn a, a whole year older than you for six months. So for that six months, I fully demand that you treat me with respect, young man. And let this family mindset drive your relationship with these people. How do we relate to one another? Well, Paul told us today told Timothy today how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God, how we are to love and serve and struggle with and argue with and come to terms with each other. 
And listen to me, please. I wish I could look everybody right in the eye. That'd be really weird, okay? (laughs) If you are struggling with gender issues, please let us struggle with you. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves with the family who loves you and who wants the best for you. We're not going to look at you and say, you freak, get out of here. We're going to reason with you. And yes, we're going to quote the Bible to you. And plead with you and love you, sometimes with tears in our eyes, to believe the truth of God's word. And again, we are in a particular cultural moment where we know these are things we have to be dealing with. You're hearing things from the outside. You're hearing things on the internets. You're hearing things on the TikToks. You're hearing things that previous generations didn't hear and didn't have to deal with. Don't let the culture define you. Let the Word of God and the people of God help you define what your role is and who you are in a holy sexuality given to God for the purpose of His glory and the good of your family here that you meet with week in, week out. Don't abandon us. Don't run from us. We love you too much for that. And I hope that you can love us as well. That we would be a grace family who know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. That we would treat each other as fathers, brothers, mothers, and sisters, basing our approach on age and gender, and of course, on the Word of God and the grace and love that is found therein. Maybe this morning you find yourself on the outside of this family of faith. You know what? God stands today and says, come. You're a sinner? Congratulations. We all are. Congratulations, that's really bad news. You need a Savior. Congratulations. I know one. His name's Jesus. He was God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. He was born of a virgin. We're going to celebrate that through four weeks of Advent over the next four weeks. That really happened. And it's important that it happened, which makes Advent very important. He lived a sinless life. He perfectly kept and fulfilled the law of God. And then they killed him. And he died on a cross. And as he died on that cross, he was paying the debt for your sins and for mine. And he said, I love you enough to take your punishment. I love you enough that I'm going to make a way for you to be adopted into the family of God. Bring your sins to me. See the sufficiency of his sacrifice through his body and his blood to pay the penalty for your sins. Tell him, I'm a sinner and I need my sins forgiven and he will forgive your sins. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. That's the truth of the gospel. He died. He was buried. And he came back to life three days later. He showed himself alive to over 500 people of his choosing, by the way. And then he ascended on high, sat down at the right hand of God where he ever lives to make intercession for his people. And he is coming again. Not as a baby in a manger, but as the king and the judge of all the earth. And the ultimate verdict will be, what did you do 
with Jesus. I accepted him in faith. I trusted him in faith. Or I rebelled against him and said, I don't need you. What are you going to do with Jesus this morning? Each and every one of you, what are you going to do with Jesus this morning? Let's pray, church family. Father, we thank you that your way is perfect. Everything you do, you do well. Everything you do is perfect. And God, we wish sometimes that we grew younger and not older. But there's a reason. God, sometimes we do struggle with our sexuality and our gender, our maleness and our femaleness. But there's a reason. God, help us to embrace this faith family that you've adopted us into. Help us to love and serve one another well, to give you glory and to get the good for ourselves and to give the good to the people around us that we share this life with. We need your help, God. And thank you that that help is available through your Holy Spirit, through the finished work of Christ. We celebrate you and ask you to do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, who is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Please have a seat. You're not dismissed yet. Man, look at the authority I wield. Look at that. Stand up. Sit down. Stand up. Sit down. Um, a couple weeks ago, Samsung signed our covenant and became part of our uh, covenant family. Uh, the McKays are back with us. We're not going to make them sign a form again. Okay, They were covenant members before they moved and went into their um, apostatized um, <laughs> exile in line. I'm just kidding. Uh, but they're back. And being back, they are part of us. They are covenant members of of Providence Bible Church. So if you don't know them, get to know them. If you do know them, I'm sorry. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Love these people. And and they are part of us. They are covenant members with us. So hug their neck, shake their hand, um, treat them as brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, however that works out. So I just wanted to make that clear. And, and, and going forward, if people who are gone and move back into the area or come back that were covenant members when they left, they'll be covenant members when they come back, just so we know. Not super important, but it is important. So now you're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can. <laughs>